I'd like to uh, start on a series uh, that will go through seven services and uh, leading us into Easter, which are the seven words of Jesus from the cross. A few years back, I did a a series in in the lead up to Easter in which we looked at these words and that's about uh, 10 to 12 years ago. So it's about time that we revisited them because obviously being good people, you would have remembered everything I said then. (laughs) Um, But it's a good reminder. And the first word we're going to be looking at this morning is forgiveness. Forgiveness from Luke chapter 23. These last words of Jesus are important because of who said them, who uttered them, where they were uttered, why they were spoken and what they mean. They are precious because they are very very deep expressions of the man of sorrows in his time of most agony. In those moments when he actually purchased our redemption. And Jesus spoke seven times during the closing moments of his life on the cross. And from what we can gather, before the darkness descended, he spoke three times. During the darkness, he spoke once. And after the darkness had passed, he he spoke three more sentences of love. Now, if the world was ponder and just for a moment choose the most solemn moment in all of human history, surely the suffering and death of Jesus Christ would have to be right at the top. Think about it. The eternal Son of God was slain. The most wonderful, powerful, amazing person who ever walked the face of the earth, gave himself, died, killed by the very hands, the very people he created. Twenty centuries have passed since the crucifixion day. Yet the Bible describes it in such a way that we are able to visualize with great with a great deal of accuracy the events the place that it happened last year i was able to had the privilege of walking through through israel and jerusalem and just try and picture myself exactly what was going on obviously removed by time and some of the urbanization of what happened it would never be the same But you place yourself in the words of Scripture and you are there. It was unlike any other afternoon in spring. An execution was taking place. A surging crowd stood by. It was the eve of the great annual festival that brought many, many thousands of pilgrims from around Israel into Jerusalem. The earth had been rocked by an earthquake. The sky was darkened by a supernatural eclipse. There were three crosses, Golgotha. On the right and on the left were two 
criminals, robbers, who were crucified, who were killed for the things that they had done. And on the centre cross, with a mocking title, hung a sinless, perfect man. He was dying, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. That is why Spurgeon said, and I quote, I am never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of what my Lord endured. I am never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of what my Lord endured. It's impossible to exaggerate. There are no superlatives. Let me read the words from Luke chapter 23, concentrating on verses 33 and 34. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, and this is what we'll be concentrating on this morning, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus of Nazareth is looking down from the cross just after he was crucified between the two criminals. He, there he, from where he is, he can see the soldiers who have mocked him, who are mocking him, those who are, have scourged and tortured him, and the ones, the soldiers who have just nailed him to the cross. Moments before, he remembers those who have sentenced him, Caiaphas and the high priests of the Sanhedrin. Then there is Pilate who handed him over to the Jews. Jesus is also thinking of those who were supposed to be his friends. The apostles, the disciples, companions, they have deserted him except for one. Peter, who had denied him three times. The fickle crowd, who just days before, they proclaimed him as he marched into Jerusalem, waving palms and branches. And days later, the very same ones demanded his crucifixion. These words have to, the events, the words, everything that is happening has to challenge us. So these words challenge us, I think, in three main areas that I want to summarise for us. The first one is to pray for our enemies. Pray for your enemies. Yes, I know. I'm speaking to the wrong crowd here. We are whole, we're all here holy people in this place and we can't actually think of any enemies that we have because we just love everyone and everyone loves us. It's remarkable. So none of this is relevant to you guys. But let's just speak theoretically that there might be some people outside of this place who have enemies. Get to the real world. <laughs> I had a lecturer in Old Testament and uh, 
In Old Testament, you have to deal through the laments, and many of the laments speak of the psalmist raising his complaints to God and why have my enemies, why are they mocking me and so on and so forth. And he's saying, I I struggle with these verses because in the light of the New Testament, the Christian is not supposed not to have any enemies at all. That's that's what, what he said. Now, I thought about that and I said, well, Actually, I don't know if that's entirely true. And and that's not being entirely realistic. And unfortunately, thinking seriously, this seems to be a real alternative to many people today. They live in this in this fairy in this world full of flowers and fairies, totally removed from the realities of daily life. Peace and love to everyone appears to be this wonderful hippie ideal, isn't it? Peace and love, bro. Yell. Yet the very word of God promises, it promises us that if we truly live the Christian life, we will have enemies. It is par for the course. It is not as if we go looking for it, deliberately making enemies. It is simply finds us, the hatred finds us because of the Lord we follow. Because we are called by his name. So what I'm saying, I suppose, I know it sounds wrong, but if you haven't got any enemies, it's maybe because you just haven't tried hard enough. You know what I'm saying? How many discussions have you had at dinner table and friends and other places and there are certain topics that you cannot talk about because you know that that's the end of the friendship, the conversation and yet we are called to share the gospel. We are to share it in truth. We are to share it in love. And you know that the moment you share it, it's the end of it, end of discussion. You've just made yourself an enemy. And you still got to share it. Not because, not because, you know, we're deliberately making enemies, but because we have to share the truth and, and leave it out there. Let them respond. Many times they will respond in hatred, just like towards Jesus. And sometimes we will see a wonderful response people actually turning from sins to glorifying God and repentance. But somebody's got to do it. That is our calling. This is why the the example of Jesus is truly essential for us in this regard. We're not going to live in denial, but we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. Now, crucifixion is not intended to produce sudden death, like from a firing squad or the the guillotine or somebody having their heads lopped off. Crucifixion is meant to produce a slow, agonising death full of pain. It was supposed to be a show. Everybody gathered around. 
eating popcorn as these people are dying. It was not uncommon because of the hours that it took for somebody to die for the one being crucified to plead for mercy, to be put out of his misery even if that was not possible, to please just kill me now. But no, they just stay there, go on, because of the crimes they committed. We want a slow, painful death. That's, we, we don't just want somebody to die straight away. We want them to suffer because of the things they've done. Imagine the thoughts for this Australian who went into a New Zealand mosque and killed 50 people. The anger. What would be going through people's minds if they lost loved ones and the whole nation is shaken because of the events? If there was a death penalty in New Zealand, I'm pretty sure people would be saying justice has not been served because it was just too quick. If you push people, I would say, no, I just want him to be torn to shreds, skin from skin, limb from limb, to watch him suffer, to at least that'll be some type of revenge for the suffering he has caused us. Some of the people on the cross with defiance, spit and curse at those watching this scenario. But rather than curse, in Jesus' first words, we call him, we, we, we hear him calling out to God, Father, forgive them. And Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry on the cross. He begins his ministry in prayer. Verse 21. What? And will be ending his ministry in prayer. So Luke begins his ministry in chapter 3, verse 21, in prayer, and he finishes his ministry in prayer on the cross. Uh, Oswald Chambers said this, His hands can no longer perform acts of love, His feet can no more carry him on errands of mercy. But one form of service and the highest is still open to him. He can still pray. He can still pray. Some of you who have been in hospital, some of you who have been at the end of your wits, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can say, nothing except What can you do? You can pray. That's what Jesus did. You can pray. In more ways than one than we can possibly imagine, this was the ultimate ministry of intercession. A ministry that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, actually spoke about 700 years before. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says, Because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and what did he do? And made intercession for the transgressors. He was making intercession on the cross, and Isaiah already spoke about that 700 years before. 
Now, this is not referring to Jesus' present ministry as he intercedes for you and me at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 7 talks about that. Jesus there at the cross practicing what he preached. And in doing so, he is leaving us a wonderful, marvelous example to follow. And these are the words that he spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, But I say unto you, Matthew Matthew chapter 5 verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, that's the second thing, do good to those who hate you, three, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Can't be any clearer. Now that's different, isn't it? It goes against the current of society where we, everybody's got this card. It's not the ace in the deck of cards. Not the full hand. This this is the favourite card that people like to play today, the victim card. The victim card beats any hand out there. Let's turn it around and ask, has someone hurt your feelings in some way? It's not just bad having physical suffering, now it's feelings are bad if you've been hurt. So whatever way, and I know some of you here this morning have suffered physical abuse and and pain and, and, and carry that with you for the rest of your life because it's there. Are you able to pray for that person who has done you wrong? Have you ever prayed for that person who has done you wrong? Or is your heart still full of hatred that you cannot even do it? You will probably find that it is very hard to be filled with hatred in your heart when you are praying for them. I know it seems impossible, and that's the point, because with God, all things are possible. You will do that which is humanly impossible, because it is the power of God in you And nowhere does it reflect itself better than as we express love for our enemies. No instance in your human life will will come close to to being more like your saviour than the moment that you deliberately choose to forgive those who have done you wrong. No other time will you be more like Jesus. We have been freely forgiven. Therefore, we should freely forgive. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's automatic. I'm saying that humanly it is impossible, but with God it is possible. So, he prayed for his enemies despite their intention. 
despite their intention. When it comes to the law, when it comes to the law, the judicial system pays a lot of attention to intention. Attention to intention. It is safe to say all of us have been hurt intentionally as well as unintentionally at one time or another. Don't worry, we have also hurt other people intentionally or unintentionally. Despite all this, Jesus prays and teaches, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They do not know. It does not mean that Jesus' enemies were ignorant of the fact of his crucifixion. It's not as if they were in this drunken stupor and said, oh man, what did we do? They did not know full well that uh, somehow you know, they just tripped over or they were drugged, they were forced to do what they did. No, they did know full well. They cried out very deliberately when offered the options between Barabbas and Jesus to free Barabbas to crucify Jesus, to crucify him. They were there as witnesses to the fact that he was dying on the cross. It wasn't some simple cruel joke that had gone too far We were just mucking around. You know, we really didn't mean it. Come on. All of these things they knew. It was methodical. It was calculated. It was deliberate. So so why, why does it say here that they didn't know? Paul puts it so well in, in, in uh, Corinthians. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 2, 8. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's what Paul says. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What they were clearly ignorant of is the enormity of the crime. They didn't know that it was the Lord of glory they were crucifying. Oh, sure. He was prophesied about hundreds of times before he came. When he came, John the Baptist told everyone who he was. Jesus told them who he was. And somehow they still refused to listen, to accept, to believe in his name. Today's law as it stands, uh, does make provision for acquitting someone if they were somewhat ignorant of the crime or if it was a terrible tragedy. For example, as has happened, and I pray it never happens, if you back out of your driveway and you run over your child or somebody else's child, the fact that the grief after the fact will be overwhelming is, is terrible enough. And he does, the law does provide some provision, obviously. 
What was your state when you backed out? Were you inebriated? Or that type of thing, those, some of the circumstantial evidence, uh, circumstances. But it still, it still might be charged with manslaughter in that case. And under the Old Testament law, God required that atonement should be made for sins of ignorance. In Leviticus chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, it says, when a, when a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he is to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver according to the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. It is in view of these commands in the Old Testament that David prayed, he says, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Think about that. Forgive my hidden faults. Sin is always sin in the sight of God, whether we are conscious of it or not. Sins of ignorance need atonement just as truly as do conscious sins. God is holy. He will never lower his standard of righteousness to the level of our incompetence or ignorance. Ignorance is not innocence. And I can already hear the silent protest. As a matter of fact, with our increased knowledge about so many things, we can probably say that we are more culpable in our day and age than in the days of Moses. As um, Spider-Man found out, with increased knowledge comes increased responsibility. Power, isn't it? We have no excuse. We have no excuse for our ignorance. Despite all this, despite all this knowledge or ignorance, the, the fault, the blame is ours. Does not minimise the enormity of our guilt. Sins of ignorance need divine Forgiveness. That is why Jesus prayed for you and me. And he prayed for his enemies despite their destruction. It says here, they divided his garments and cast lots. Verse 34. There at the cross, Jesus was dying for the sins of all of humanity. He had a lot on his plate. Yet beneath the cross... The soldiers were distracted. What were they doing? They were gambling. They were gambling on Jesus' clothes. Jesus' clothes was valuable. It was seamless. Quite possibly, the the only thing of value that Jesus owned all of his human life. Yes, just as it was prophesied in the Psalms, they cast lots. These soldiers, they, they really didn't care what was going on at the cross, the suffering. Uh, they switched channels to the enormity of the tragedy that was unfolding and they got into doing something else. 
It just sort of adds to the sadness, the tragedy of the whole situation, doesn't it? Was it because these soldiers had already done that many crucifixions that they become somehow, I don't know, immune to the pain, heartless? Maybe. Was it because the value of the clothes was so much that unless they acted quickly, somebody else was going to run away with it and say, no, 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 we're going to sort this out now before things, uh, we pack our bags and go home. They didn't want to miss out on a financial opportunity. Was it because they were problem gamblers that they just couldn't help themselves? In all of this, I think here we have another example of how we are. Isn't it true that those who make it a habit of hurting others intentionally, unintentionally, usually have their attention solely focused on themselves? After all, there is no room for anyone else in your universe. Sorry, it's about me. We have problems of our own making. And I just want to deal with my own issues, my own problems. I don't have any room for anyone or anything for anyone else. It's funny when the New Year kicks in, a lot of the memes that come, on, come up on social media go something like this. This year, I'm going to make a resolution. I'm going to think more about myself. Have you seen those? I'm going to think more about myself. wonder how that's working out for you, if you're one of the ones that uh, has put this on social media. That's the way the rest of the world thinks. Isn't that part of the problem, that everybody thinks about themselves? Despite all of this, despite all of this, the, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Those who can forgive others have their attentions focused not on themselves but on God who has forgiven them. They actually pay attention to the words from the cross and accept what Jesus has done. And finally, prayer answered. One of the things that is a little bit hard to take for those of us who are doctrinally minded, I suppose, to think more about theological issues. How can Jesus proclaim forgiveness when there is no repentance? Isn't someone supposed to repent first and then they are forgiven? Yes, that is the normal course of things. How can Jesus proclaim forgiveness even when the great majority of them are clearly unrepentant? Isn't this hinting towards some type of universalism where it doesn't matter what you believe because we're all going to be saved anyway? All the roads lead to Rome. His death covers all sins of the world, whether you believe in him or not. It doesn't matter. That's the age of pluralism. That's what they reckon. Tolerance. There are many who believe this. I am not one of them. Let me say that Christ's prayer of forgiveness 
has been proclaimed by the cross, from the cross. But it's only as we appropriate ourselves of his forgiveness and recognise that we are indeed guilty that we are able to accept his offer of forgiveness. It's in the line of, we love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first forgave us. In other words, repentance of sin is crucial in accepting the gift, the eternal gift of forgiveness and salvation. Is there any evidence that this actually happened at the time on the cross? Yes, there is. We have the example of the thief who pleads for Jesus to remember him. We're going to be looking at this further down the track in our series. We also have the the marvellous example of the centurion who was in charge of the soldiers at the crucifixion. Luke 23, 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Jesus' prayer was also answered just a few weeks later when 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up and preached. This is what he said in Acts 3, 17 to 19. Now, brothers, I know that you, what? Acted in ignorance. That's that word again. As did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer, repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And here Peter uses that word ignorance in a way that corresponds to what Jesus proclaimed. They don't know what they do. What was the response? When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be saved. And maybe some of you here this morning are asking the same question. What shall we do? Repent and be saved. There is no other way. No other saviour. No other Lord but Jesus. And finally, as he was praying on the cross, he was thinking about all those things that had happened, but we also know that he was also thinking of us, of us who daily forget him, ignore him. Jesus prayed for you and me, long before we even believed in him. We all have people who don't believe in Jesus, family, friends. Keep praying for those who do not believe. Some of them are dearly loved. Some of them are perhaps your enemies. Pray them. 
In all these things, we're challenged to follow the example of our Saviour. In everything, follow Jesus. And be all the glory, be to his name alone. Amen.